to see for yourselves one of the most amazing events. When is this great experiment made? Impervious to heat, impossible to move. Is it human or inhuman? Gentlemen, do you realize what we've found? It's time for the Geeky Drummy Podcast. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Geeky Drummy Podcast with me, Keith Bloomfield, standing in for Ryan and the rest of the team. In this episode, we take a visit to Lem Comic Con, which took place on the 5th of October at the All Saints Parish Church in Leamington Spa. Lem Comic Con 2019 was the fifth year of this award-winning comic book convention and we were lucky enough to attend a couple of the panels. In the first panel, hosted by Ollie McNamee, Senior Editor at ComicCon.com, we got to hear from John Wagner, writer of Judge Dredd and Strontium Dog, and artist Dan Cornwell. They told us a little bit more about their upcoming graphic novel, Rock of the Reds, which has recently been successfully funded on Kickstarter. Thank you, first of all, for uh, not only supporting Lem Comic Con, but also coming to speak to both... John Wagner and Dan Cornwall, partners in crime on Rock of the Reds and soon to be released Rock the God, which we are here mainly to talk about today. But let's first off kick off with uh, Rock of the Reds and for anyone unaware of Rock of the Reds, anyone who's been living under a rock for the (laughs) last few years, I know this is a project that you've, uh, you've held in your heart for a number of years now, John, seeing you and Dan across a number of comic cons, it's Rock of the Red that you're very keen to talk about. So where are we up to with both Carl Dixon, Rock, who's taken over his place uh, on the Radford Reds, and we'll talk about Rock the God and the Kickstarter later on. Rock is an alien of almost magical powers. And most of you know this because I've twisted most of your arms to buy it. But he's, he's fleeing galactic assassins and he hides out in this planetary backwater called Earth. And he lands on Earth and he takes the shape of the first person that he meets, who is bad boy footballer Kyle Dixon. And in the guise of Dixon, he begins to play for lowly Radford Reds and discovers a love of football. But meanwhile, the assassins are closing in. And there's a big finale at Wembley in the cup final when the assassins catch up with him. And I can't tell you anymore. (laughs) Most of you know it anyway. And I like the way the first story arc plays around a season of football. And so we're going to go on to the second season shortly when we talk about Rock the God. But Dan, how did you originally get involved? Tell us your story behind all of this. John, um, I was driving the bus in Brighton and... uh, I got a Facebook message. I used to leave my phone in the binnacle of the bus, and um, every traffic light just have a quick look. You know, not meant to. And this one day, it pinged with a Facebook message, and got to the traffic light, lifted it up, had a quick look, and it said John Wagner. And uh, you didn't crash the bus. He did. He did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I um, I didn't believe it. I thought. I don't know, some phone's been hacked, my mate's having a laugh, something like that. But got to the terminus, had a look, and it was from John. He just said, oh, uh, do you like football and can you draw it? Whether I could or couldn't wasn't an issue. I just <laughs> said yes. Draw a circle, you can draw a football, yeah, can't exactly. You? I just said yes. Um, he goes, okay, I've got your email, I'll contact you later. And I spent, I remember I was meant to, I was due, the bus was due out in about five minutes. And this is when I smoked. And I must have stood there for half an hour just smoking cigarettes, chain smoking. And it's just queue of people waiting to get my bus. <laughs> I was just too excited to, to drive this bus. But then I got home and it's one of those moments when you think this will ch- everything's going to change. Yeah. When this happens, everything's going to change, and it did. That led on to John twisting Matt's arm to a degree. Matt Smith, Matt Smith, two thousand AD. I don't um, think he needed much twisting. He just needed the suggestion. He was quite mm. happy to have Dan working for him. And Matt at the forty because he's cheap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then uh, Matt Matt came over at the fortieth and said, um, "John sent me over." <laughs> And uh, he goes, I understand you, you'd like to work for 2000 and do some work for 2000. I was like, yeah. He goes, okay, you're on. And he goes, what, was it, what would it be? And he goes, a John Wagner Dread. Whoa. Which, so that was your introduction to these 2008. To, to working for them, yeah. And uh, it was a five part. Five part Judge Dread. It was your debut. 
Unbelievable. And Unbelievable. things did change then, one oh, with absolutely. Rock of the Red and that in your yeah. back pocket. Well, the irony of it is that uh, because of this, Dan was able to go fully freelance and then could no longer afford to draw Rock <laughs> at the rates I was able to pay, which is why we're doing this Kickstarter. It still amazes me that I, I managed to do Rock of the Reds while driving a 130, bus. 120, 30 pages yeah. whilst having a full-time job. Because now, <laughs> I'm not saying I struggle now when I, when I don't drive a bus, but it, it still baffles me. How, how did I get 130, 20, 30 pages out whilst driving a bus within a year, I think it was, wasn't yeah, it? Well, you did it pretty well. Yeah. Which, uh, I suppose it's time finds you, doesn't it, in these sort of places. And it's that desire to want it, I think. We just, just don't have a day off. You yeah. just, we just drive the bus, draw a rock, and that was just all it is was. It a for... bit more of days off every now and again now, or is it quite full on with doing um, Rock the God? See, I'm segging in there to Rock the God <laughs> with other a... commitments. It, uh, I'm, I'm beginning to manage it a bit better. I think to start off, you, you, you're all over the place because becoming freelance, self-employed, did you like? Um, I was new to it, not sure if it's going to work. So yeah. I remember last Christmas it was pretty bad because I didn't plan things well enough. Right, sending out invoices and get money in at the right time. All of that was forgetting yeah. Christmas presents for your kids. Exactly, yeah. Sort of yeah. So that was a bit rough, but you, you, it's something you learn as you go along. Okay. And was it always a talent search job behind Rock of the Red? Well, it, it, initially, yeah, yeah, I had to find uh, everyone that was going to work on it. Uh, started with Dan, and then uh, I asked 2000 AD uh, what colorists they use that I might also use, and they sent. Uh, Sent Dan and me three different samples, yeah. I think, and I think we thought Pete Doherty wouldn't be one, but he was busy, I think. Uh, at the time. Well, I, I don't know. I think Ab- Abby, Abby Bulmer was yeah, our, yeah, our yeah. first choice. Uh, but and was it the same with Jim Campbell on letters? Or did they, or did you have someone in mind? For no, that, I, always, well, I've, I read the 2000 AD forum sometimes, and Jim was on a lot. And he's a cantankerous git. I, I quite like that. Jim could start an argument in an empty house. <laughs> and so I, I engaged him, and he was very happy to do it. And, uh, it turned out he was, uh, he was actually a designer by trade as well. Yeah, he worked so, on newspapers, and oh, really? he does all our production. Right, yeah. And he, he's been so good that we've actually given him a share of the royalties. Wow. We couldn't do it without him, really. So we've got the end of the first season, we've got the new Carl Dixon single-handedly saving the club and pushing him up the table, mm-hmm. but suddenly we have a whole new story, a whole new season, a whole new set of challenges for Rock, who in the 28-page free preview on Kickstarter at the moment does give you a really good setup for not only what's coming next, but also where the original Carl Dixon is as well, who himself is going on something of a literal and metaphorical journey yeah. of his own. It's like a, a pint-sized buddy movie. Kyle, yeah. Kyle and uh, referee Nigel Bull have both been shrunk to the size of a Barbie doll by Rock, and he keeps them in a freezer cabinet in this spaceship. And at the beginning of uh, the second season, the freezer cabinet goes on the blink and Kyle and referee Bull escape. So you've got this pint-sized buddy movie going on right through the book. Where did the original idea come from, Rock? Was it just right. from a desire of fusing what you enjoyed as a kid yourself well, for a new generation? Well, Alan readers? Grant and I, were about 25 years ago, were doing an anthology comic, a typical British anthology yeah. comic. And one of the stories was obviously going to have to be a football story, but how could we do a, a football story with a difference? We'd done another character in uh, Eagle called Doomlord. Oh, yes. And with Doomlord, we'd explored a lot of the same kind of ideas. And so we thought, well, some other bastards have the right to Doomlord now. Let's just take him anyway and and move him into this football. So we took a lot of the elements that made Doomlord such a good character and we combined them with the football story. Right. So Rock, in many ways, sprang out of that, and he sprang out of Roy of the Rovers, and, of course. and mainly all the old comics of my youth. Yeah. The Victor, the Hornet, the Hotspur, you know, all the old, good old DC Thompson, Dundee comics. Uh, in a way, Rock is a homage to all that. 
It's a good, simple storytelling. Oh, certainly, it's certainly got that tongue-in-cheek attitude a lot mm. of our comics have, whether it's 2000 AD or whether it's the Beano at the other end. Mm. And I think that's, that's mm. a real great sense. That it certainly feels like a John Wagner comic I am reading, oh, yeah. where I read it, you see. And so I'm really fascinated with this new 130-page graphic novel and the Kickstarter that launched only recently... Because um, I've also seen that even for 50 quid, there are a few nice little throw-ins by Brian, certain Brian Boland, for example, yeah. who, who's gifted you a cover, I suppose. No, I don't think he's gifted it. <laughs> well, not gifted it. You said you're gifting it to the readers, is what yeah, I should say. Yeah. How do you go about thinking of a Kickstarter? Like I say, Dan's very busy now, so the Kickstarter seems to be the most obvious way forward, where you can not only control the quality, but also the quantity at a rate that you want to do. Yeah. So how did that come about, other than those sheer logistics? Well, it's when Dan told me he couldn't afford to draw it anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So our only route out was the Kickstarter. I mean, I totally understand, because if you're a freelance, you cannot work for the kind of rates that I can pay. So you you need a a decent living wage. So the only way to raise the money for it was a Kickstarter. If it works, we'll be bringing out a graphic novel roughly next summer. If it doesn't work, we'll bring out the six issues, but it could take a number of years because we'll have to make each issue pay for itself before we can go on to the next one. So, Dan, how do you fit in this? Because uh, obviously your 28 pages at least have already been drawn mm. up, been coloured in, been letting it's out there in the digital world uh, and, again, free, free to download. It really gives you not only a taste, but I, to be honest, I was quite amazed that 28 pages was given away, that's more than an American comic these yeah. days. Yeah, it's, it's... But you've got to whet people's appetites, and, and I think that it, it does... That's it. pouring a shower over it, them, and well, exactly, it works. Yeah. But, it, but it, it, we hope it works, we hope people want to know what, how the story continues, you know, because it leaves it... It doesn't tell you too much. No. It, it, yeah. it, is, it is a tease, it doesn't give the story away, what's going to happen, you know, you get an idea what could happen, but obviously with John's writing, that can all change. Because, as you say, you work... You don't have a, a long term plan. You do an issue and see how it goes, which yeah. way it takes you. So it yeah. can go any way. So when I get the script, I have to say, when I get the scripts, each one's better than the last. And I get excited getting the scripts wow. and reading them. And like the first, this, this series is, you know, Rock, Rock of the Reds was a really good series. And it, but as John described it to me, he said, you know, that you're fleshing out the universe in that story. You, you, you're set, setting everything up, character building, this and that. This series, it's all more rounded. It's all set up already, so now you can really play with the story and the characters, and and and, mm. and it it shows. Obviously, in these next scripts I've got, I've got two, issue three, issue two, and they're really good, really good. Especially like I say, the buddy movie part of it, you know. Bull and uh, Dixon on the run. But I also, Rock's mum is a bit of yeah. a bit of a character, isn't she? <laughs> yes, she is. She yeah. seems to have one reason. She explains to him why she wants him to become a god, and then again, at the, you know, that sort of cliffhanger twist at the end. There's actually more of a worse yeah. reason for why, without giving too much exactly. away. Like I say, it's for free. People hopefully will find out this Kickstarter, maybe pledge to it, certainly mm. download those amazing mm. first twenty-eight pages. Yeah, we didn't think we could lose by giving everyone access to the first episode because if you like it you'll want to read on, if you don't we'll save yourself some money And who? which of the characters speak to you the most, which ones do you enjoy writing, sheer, just because maybe they're sheer tenacity or maybe you know someone like Kyle who's clearly yeah, on that redemptive journey eventually. I'm really enjoying writing yeah. Kyle and Bully <laughs> Bully is a corrupt referee who's been taking bribes and uh, in the first series, Rock gets angry at him. That's why he shrinks him in the middle of a game. Because the referee disappears. Everybody thinks he's gone off to Panama to spend his ill-gotten gains. But he's actually in Rock's freezer. <laughs> but Kyle doesn't like him much either, does he, at the beginning oh, no, of uh, oh, Rock no, the Gods? No, no. But Kyle's almost like a bad guy, isn't he? He's got such a, an attitude anyway. So yeah. that, everyone, you know... When you watch films, when you read comics, you're generally attracted to the bad guys, aren't you? Because yeah. the bad guys have got this kind of pawn. Because Kyle's got such an attitude. Yeah. Bad guys are generally a lot more fun to write than good guys. That's why Dread's a lot of fun to write. What can people expect then from this proposed graphic novel um, when it comes out next summer? Well, if you like Rock of the Reds, um, this one is better. It's it's. Uh, it's firming out the world a bit more, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? It's developing maybe yeah. some more of these characters and... 
it's, it's a much better... Well, Rock and Red is great. This one is, is like I said, when, I, when, I, when I've read the scripts and there's no pictures, I'm just sitting there reading the scripts, it put a huge smile on my face, laughing out loud, Lovely. sections in it, and that's what you want, I think, in a, in a book. And, and it makes you feel, it's one of those books that doesn't take itself too serious, which is what yeah. I like. You, you enjoy reading it. Yeah. At the end of it, you've got a smile, and you've enjoyed it, and that's what it's about, I think. We're building up to season three, where uh, Rock takes the place of Donald Trump, <laughs> and sorts the world's problems. Question from the lady there in the front. How do you deal with the best way to do it is to write even if it's nonsense if you've got a block just write something and keep going at it alternatively you could bang your head against the wall which is what I used to do uh, it's pretty I haven't had block for a long while uh, it's just because I won't tolerate it I write something if I'm not getting on with this story get up to the computer start typing something and it helps it's strange but it helps even if you've written nonsense you can see little germs in, in it that are valuable so that's what I, I would I would write something, don't be blocked just get up there, it doesn't matter if you write what you want but write something Question over on the left sir Can I just ask, um, what is it about rock that um, made you want to retain the ownership of it is it, is it to do with the character or is it to do with the time of your life or is it I mean, well, it's his experience, really. I mean, I wish I'd retained the rights to Judge Dredd, but it wasn't possible at the time. The only things I've ever made big money on were things I owned. It's like ownership is everything. And I didn't need... I, 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 I'm in the position now where I can actually sell things to 2000 AD and retain all the rights on them. I just have to take a little less money for them. So that's what I would always do. I, I would never create a new story and give the rights to anybody else. Wasn't that a thought process at one time with Rock of the Reds possibly um, serialising it through 2008? Yeah, uh, Matt Smith, uh, the editor, was quite willing to run Rock of the Reds, but I didn't think it fitted in 2008. It, it might well have, but when I decided that we would uh, publish the, the Rock of God ourselves, I suggested to Matt that he might like to do that as a creator-owned project. But by then, they had uh, revived Roy of the Rovers. Mm. So they said, we've already got a football story, sorry. But these, I would never do anything uh, work for hire anymore. I would never create a character that somebody else could own. Because it's mine. And, that, and partly that's why Rock is so dear to us because he's ours. Yeah, he's not anybody else's. Yeah, and, and you, you can do with him what you will. Yes. Whereas Dread, you know, John's probably, as everyone knows, often muted the fact that he'd love to write a, the death of Dread death story, of but Dredd, it's not allowed. Yeah. Whereas with Rock, <laughs> if we want to kill him, yeah. you can. You know, we can do. Fight against that idea, almost creating even if it's you know, mm. even if it's a dark night kind of exactly. tale. Instead, maybe one day. Well, Question from the front there, Ryan. Just a quick question. So, do you have a bit more joy, as you said, with what you're controlling the two? When you're doing something like dress, I can imagine it must be very prescriptive on what imagery you want to show, very set on mm. how you how you design a character, how you wardrobe. Do you find a bit more freedom with yourself and John when you're doing stuff like Bob? Do you get a bit more freedom to design and draw how you want to draw? I think you do because um, I have made a couple of mistakes on Dreads or the Max Normal series I've just, well, just completed it was last year, I think now, where I had drawn the shuggy tables and I hadn't read the issues back then when they had the shuggy tables and I got them all wrong. So I had to change all of them. But yeah, with, 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 <coughs> with Rock, you're, I'm designing everything. You know, John has ideas, as, as in the character Rock, he said Big Red Alien. And I think you gave me a, a, a Hellboy, Hellboy as a reference. Yeah. And I thought, well, it's, I don't think it looks anything like Hellboy. It's got horns. Mm. But um, it's certainly not like Hellboy, same colour. But and, and, and the same with Rock's world. You, it's an open book. I can do what I want with it. And at, so far... It's worked. He's yeah. not said no. That doesn't look right. Or it's a scroll. The scroll. The bad guys in in the next series. And John gave me a brief idea of what he'd like, 
and it, it just lets, it lets you run with it, which is good. Whereas Dread, like you say, it has. Um, I've heard people complain about the Lawmaster, and I've drawn a Lawmaster lawn wrong <laughs> in their eyes. But Comic fans can be very unforgiving, can't they? <laughs> but a lot of people like what, the way you do it. Yeah, too. the latest one I've just done, actually, a page a couple of weeks ago, um, I've updated it a bit again because um, I can't stop playing with it. And uh, You'll be on a but, scooter at the end. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the but last I, scooter. I tried to implement the big, the big lights on the Lawmaster, which I kind of thought made them like LEDs before, but now I've got big lights on it, so it's harking back a bit to Carlos's original. Do you miss the days then, when it, John, when sort of maybe in the birth of any character, whether it's back in 1938 with Man or even back in 1977 with Judge Dredd, do you miss the days of that sort of experimentation? There was a lot of experimentation with Judge Dredd, even from issue to issue, like, for example, in the Judge Caligula sort of saga. They seemed to be an evolution of uniforms, depending yeah. on which artist was writing it. And to me, that, that sort of lack of continuity, for want of a better word, as a child, really spoke to me. Anything could happen. Yeah. I never liked it. I always thought they should have taken closer notice and have a, more of a style guide. Uh, there are too many differences in it, but it's too late to change all that now, so people just do pretty much what they like. But had I, had I been editing it, I would have had a style guide. You draw a dread like this, he's got this many links on his chain, his badge looks like this, you know, he does yeah. not have stubble. Whoops. <laughs> but we're there now with the dread, aren't yeah, so I can't, I can't help having down. stubble to characters. <laughs> rock hasn't got stubble yet, has he? I might give him a go to no, Oh, no, don't give <laughs> him. Well, that would be evil rock, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hold on a minute. <laughs> we have got time for a few more questions. Not the cars coming out as one graphic novel, ultimately, yes. on the six issues. Does that mean you have to change the way you structure the story from the first one? Or will it be... Same sort of thing. No, I, I'm still writing it basically as six issues. Uh, but, I mean, it will go smoothly into a, a, a graphic novel. But just in case the Kickstarter fails and we have to go to the issues, then I'm still writing it as six separate issues. Well, I'm having a feeling we might have to be seven. I think the more you do, the better, you know, free reign on it now, if you yeah, like. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, but it's, so it's that's all the beauty of it yourself, isn't it? If you want to kick in a seventh issue, you yeah. can do. Yeah, nobody can turn around to us and say, <laughs> well, you've got to finish it here. Yeah. We do what we like. Any more questions on Rock or even on Judge Dredd? Is there anything you've worked that you've worked on and you really didn't think of a particular storyline or something like that and you just kind of felt you had to work on it? Too many things. Yeah. <laughs> I've created stories that I realised I didn't want to write shortly after creating them, and uh, once or twice I've been able to say to the editor, could you finish that off for me? I've <laughs> quite enough of it. There was another story that Alan Grant and I wrote a long time ago for, I think it was for Eagle, it was Rugby League. I said to Alan, well, let's, let's write a Rugby League story. So we wrote the first episode, pretty good, I thought, Hard Man's Game we called it, and then we realised we didn't know a thing about rugby league. <laughs> so I had to call up the editor and say, I'll give you the money back. <laughs> Just rip that script up. I think artistically, it's um, the things I don't like to do. I don't, there's not been a story I didn't enjoy drawing. Um, I think you get certain pages, I think as readers as well, generally talking heads can be a bit boring, you know, and you're trying to, I always try to make different angle, camera angles, you know. That can get a bit tedious, although the two first page, the second page and the third page of Rock the God, with <laughs> two black pages. Although it works, although it works because the story's so good. Uh, do you think the destruction of Mega City 2, one of the stories that that was basically California, was a mistake because you lost so much potential for the material? Well, I didn't do it. I objected to it strongly. No, I, I didn't do it. It just happened. That's one of the things about Dread. When you sell all the rights, or any story you sell the rights to, you've no control over it anymore. Nobody has to ask you what to do with it. So that happened. It wasn't on my watch. It was probably a mistake, but then again, it's a comic. You can resurrect it, come out of the shower, and oh, there it is again. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think of the state of British comics in the 21st century? Because when I was a kid, we had a wealth of comics to yeah. choose from. I mean, I, I read my sister's 
Bunty mm -hmm. and Bella, so like, Me you know, too, yeah. 2000 AD, Wizard of Chips and all that. So where do you think we are with, with, with particularly mm. British comics in the 21st century? Well, they're not doing that well, but one thing it has done is spawned quite a, a healthy independent market. You see an awful lot of independent comics that you wouldn't have seen back then. But yeah, it's sad. It's sad partly because there was work for so many people, so many artists and writers back then. There were so many stories. And these days you see really good artists and writers who can't get work, who are working for mm. fans. That's where I found Dan. And uh, it's sad that these people with talent actually can't get in on the game. I think, I think as well, um, making comics read readily available. When, when I was young, you go to your local newsagents, I was a paper boy. Yeah. You had stacks of comics to choose from, you know, stacks of them. Mm. And, uh, and that's what your pocket money, your paper round money went on, that and sweets. Of course, now, they cost now, tuppence and yeah, tuppence. Whereas now, now, now you go to the... You, well, there isn't local paper shops now. It's Tesco's, isn't it? Tesco's and co-op. Mm. And, so and they don't stack these kind of things. They stack... Which, you know, they're still comics to, to a degree. The, the bagged... Yeah, that's my partner's stuff. Yeah, they, they, they have those. And, and, uh, but it's, it's a shame you can't... If, if, if they had those spinning racks yeah. in, in these stores with piles of comics in them, I think they would sell. Because I've been to cons before where they, they did the older mom a little while ago. Kids coming in, and the wonder on their faces when seeing all this comic stuff. And it's like, well, if they were available in your local shop, yeah. they might sell. Mm. But because they're not available, you can't buy something that's not there. And, and young children aren't going to go online to buy comics online. No. Unless you, know, you read them online, I suppose, but it's not the same as... This is my biggest, the biggest gripe I have. It's... It, if they're not there, people can't buy them, especially children. And children are the next generation mm. readers. If they're mm. not there, they can't buy them. They have to be there. Mm. And but it, because it's like I said, these pigs, these are Tesco's now. These are co-ops and Sainsbury's. They're money-making machines. Yes, so they don't they. gamble on these kind of things for whatever. Well, purely because it, they're not sure it's going to make money, and that's mm. such a shame. It's such a shame. It's not only that, but if you want to get a comic into a, like W. H. Smiths or Tesco's, you have to pay them like twenty or thirty grand just to stock it. And an independent can't do and that. And it's a doorway into reading for children. Yes, yeah. it really Comments. is. And I'd like to thank John and Dan for their time today as well. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Mike Carey, a former writer on X-Men, Ultimate Fantastic Four, Lucifer, The Unwritten and Hellblazer. And you're listening to Geeky Brummy. With John Constantine, Hellblazer, recently returning to the DC Comics universe, we got to hear from two of his greatest writers, Jamie Delano and Mike Carey, in this panel hosted once again by Ali McNamee. For someone who lived and breathed Constantine, someone who must have poured a lot more than maybe they think they did into that character for those four years, um, did Constantine take you for a journey in the end, or were you still... In charge of the writing of Constantine, did his voice take over? Oh, you never you always to surrender you know. to your characters. Otherwise, you're not going to have a story. Um, you know, you've got to trust your characters. So once you've got a character alive, they're going to tell the story. Um, I mean, what animates that character in right in the very beginning? What spark of life comes from? I don't know, but um, the character is who governs the story. Definitely, I, I, I totally agree with that. Having I, I, I said that, I'm always really, um, really wary. When I, when I hear a writer talking about um, boasting about um, how rebellious their characters are, because it's kind of a humble brag. When, when people say, you know, oh, I, I wanted the character to go this way, I had the arc all planned, but suddenly she went off in that direction and she had a life of her own. And it's kind of like saying, you know, I'm, I'm so good a writer that the products of my imagination are more real than you are. I think what happens is you have, you have a sort of sketchy idea of a character, and then as you start to write it, you're sort of hovering over the same place more and more, and the character fills out in front of you. But it's not, it is a kind of surrender, but at the same time, it's a, it's a creative engagement that happens in a fractal sort of... Yeah, I'm sure way. it's not as straightforward as just surrendering to the character, but um, my characters will embark on conversations and find themselves in situations that I had no conscious intention of planning. You know, a scene will be required, and then, lo and behold they'll start enacting it and incarnating it for me. You and then you have to pick out the good bits of you know, their yeah. lives and shed the dross. But um, 
you were saying earlier that you don't plan. You don't. You don't. You don't um, extensively I rarely plan. plan. I very rarely plan. Um, I do. I might have a sort of a, a very tenuous chain of possibility and maybe an end point um, of some a destination in mind, but how the hell I get there is completely arbitrary. Um, you know, it could be any one of dozens of ways, and otherwise I couldn't do it. Frankly, I mean, it would just if I had to just paint by numbers right and you know, I couldn't do it it would drive me insane so the joy of the writing to me is in it's also the agony of it it's also, it's also you know, when it's not working when, when yeah. the characters aren't helping and you're just staring at that blank sheet of paper and the deadline clock is ticking down that kind of stuff is dismal um, and they'll send you insane but when it's working there's nothing better you know it just keeps coming and everything clicks right. together and the jokes are there and you know and so once you're that's in that flow, it, you can really follow that through, me, I suppose. I can, yeah, that's how it works for me. If I, yeah. It can take, when I was writing, let's say Hellblazer, for example, it could take me a couple of weeks to get page one down. A couple of weeks of lying about, getting stoned, drinking too much coffee, um, feeling miserable, putting the computer on, putting the computer off, um, et cetera, et cetera, then get page one or two down, yeah. and then, bingo, off it goes in a week, finish the story, type it all up nicely. You know, but um, for the first couple of weeks, bang your head on the wall constantly. It's, yeah, yeah, but hey, it's great. Yeah, really. well, <laughs> taking on that, similar question to you, Mike, but in the context of Lucer and Hellblazer, obviously these are two characters. One is up there, the other one is very street level, yeah. but they both share a certain core and certain themes. How did you approach Hellblazer and what kind of stories were you able to explore there and how did you plan them? Which maybe you couldn't explore with Lucifer. Yeah, it, it, it was. There are interesting similarities. I mean, they're, they're both. They both have the same kind of um, ironic detachment, mm. I think. Um, but Lucifer operates on a cosmic level, as you say. Um, there are certain things you can't do with Lucifer. You can't really ever have Lucifer uh, existentially threatened, because he's he's the second most powerful being in the universe. The only, the only person who could threaten him is God, and God wouldn't because um, that's not how their relationship um, operates mm. so you, you, you have to use Lucifer I think very much as Neil uses Morpheus in Sandman as a catalyst for human stories you have to show other people being changed and moved around them um, by decisions that they take um, John is always in the thick of things so for me part of the real appeal of John is that he's somebody who knows magic uh, in a visceral way, but almost never uses it. He wins by just mm. being... He, he's, he's smart, he's quick, and he's outrageously um, given to taking stupid risks. And he, he comes out on top, but his victories are always Pyrrhic ones. It's, it's, a, it's an absolutely irresistible formula, I think. And that's one of, one of the reasons why you know, there, are, there, are, there are these um, patterns that emerge, no matter who, who writes them. Mm. Now, on... The research front, because obviously he does deal with a lot of occult issues over the years. Did you find yourself researching much of that, or because it's magic, you can make it up as you go along? Well, I've read a few old magic books, like you know, but I need to get some terminology down. Right. I've never been a Alan Moore. I don't got no snake gods in the cupboard or anything <laughs> like that. Um, but no, I mean, no, you make it up. Bottom line, um, we're all steeped in you know all kinds of mythologies aren't we and, yeah uh, we, and you just grab bits from here and there without conscious in, you know they've all got create something that sort of makes sense i mean anybody can make up magic that works i'm sure you know it's just imagination when it comes down yeah. to it isn't yeah. it and that's the magic that i operate in is imaginary and i think um and I, don't, I, I totally agree i think the less specific you are about the magic, the better it is in Hellblazer. I gave him a, a sort of fully worked out Latin spell one time, and some, some, <laughs> someone referred to it in a review as well, this is a bit of Dennis Wheatley from Kerry. You know? <laughs> <laughs> which, was, which was fair, I think. The, 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 best, the best magic trick I ever had John pull off was he's chatting to someone, to, to a big um, armed thug on a subway platform. And he says, you know what magic is? Nine-tenths of magic is just making someone look the other way. Yeah. And as he says it, he's lighting a cigarette and he throws the packet away and the guy follows the packet with his eye and John punches him in the face. Uh. <laughs> I did a similar thing in Hellblazer Pandemonium. I'm the last one that I wrote, it's still digitation in the end, isn't it? Yeah. Right. 
what are you both reading at the moment and enjoying? Cool, good question. After you. Um, <laughs> well, I'm not reading the moment. I'm, I'm rereading the, um, the Gormgast trilogy. Cool. Um, I, 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 a, a, couple of, a couple of months ago, I, I, I did something which I almost never do, which is I, uh, I bought a specific edition of a book to recapture an experience. When I was in my late teens, I read the Aaron Spottiswood 1970s editions of Gormengas, and I bought them again. And it's just it's really a real pleasure going back into that world. I'm also rereading, doing a lot of rereading, uh, Palomar and Locas, the two, the two big fantagraphics collections of the Hernandez brothers' works, mm. which are magnificent, really wonderful. I don't think I'm reading enough because I can't actually focus on what's stacked by the side of my bed at the moment. Um, I've got a book on popular physics written by an Italian physicist that my brother bought me that I'm halfway through. That's quite intriguing. Um, I just read a book called The Wake by uh, Paul Kingsnorth, which imagines the time of the Norman invasion of Britain and is sort of written in a, a kind of card Anglo-Saxon which really works. It's quite a dark and intriguing tale with some parallels to our own time in some kind of strange way that's hard to define. I don't know, lately I've been tending to read more sort of um, indie, <coughs> indie novels, you know, by small presses and things, and I just grab them at random when I see somebody on Twitter who says something that kind of appeals to my sensibility. I think, oh, I'll get your book then and have a look at it, but the titles are all escaping me at the moment, I'm afraid. The last, the last new book I read was Francis Harding's Deep Light, which is really, <coughs> really good. Set in a world where the gods have only just died. They killed each other in, in a vast internecine conflict and people just coming to terms with a world without gods. I find it a struggle to read sometimes because I get off into my own little world. Do you find that both yourselves when you're like getting really engaged in the hobby Actually, I can use this myself. Spin off into a kind of creative process. Um, Somebody uh, posted on Twitter a little while back a definition of a book hangover, which is you can't get into the world of the book you're reading because you're still in the world of the last thing you read. I get that a lot. Ever since I started being a professional writer, the pleasure in actual reading diminished almost quite rapidly, in fact, um, because something inside me kept saying... No, I wouldn't have said it like that. Or, you know, put the comma there. Or, you know, just stupid things that are really irritating and you shouldn't even, you know, there's no need to even think. But some sort of kind of critical editing process that must go on in my subconscious while I'm writing that turns the words into the rhythm and pattern that I want them to be in somehow tries to exert itself on other people's stuff. I, I can't... So if it's a book that I've been writing and the new creative team takes over... I need a cooling off period before I can go and read their stuff. I need to sort of like wait a few months because mm. otherwise it does feel like you know, you, you, it feels wrong that you're not the one who's in control of it anymore. Yeah, and, it's, and, and yeah, I mean, when Garth took over on Hellblazer, I couldn't look at it for months and months, really, because suddenly well, he started shouting a lot and drinking Guinness for a start. <laughs> he did drink a lot of Guinness. <laughs> the first sort of run of Hellblazer is quite psychedelic in a lot of ways. What inspired that? Uh, my childhood, I suppose. <laughs> well, my teenage The psychedelic world is, you know, has its, its parallels in the subconscious and the, the magical realms. Uh, you know, I think, you know, I mean, I took a lot of LSD when I was younger, so I expect some of it bled through into, into my work, you know. So in all the past tense, very good of you. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm old now. We're My gonna, stamina is depleted. <laughs> We're going to leave it there with just one last question for you very quickly. Keith? Well, it might not be quick. If you could return to the characters of John or Lucifer to write the story that you wanted to write, unin- uninhibited by any continuity or whatever it is, which mm. artist, living or dead, would you like to illustrate? Living or dead? You. I've got no answer to that. <laughs> I have an answer to that. Da- David Beauchard. Um, <laughs> David B., the guy who did Epileptic, which is his least good book, but uh, he's he's an amazing writer. He did a thing called The Treasure Hunters, which is based on the Arabian Nights. It's fantastic horror, strange, stylized, really terrifying horror. He'd be good. Mm. Well, we've run out of time. Thank you very much, Jamie and Mike, for giving up your time today. Thank you, everybody, for coming and listening to us. And uh, they'll be able to take the rest of the day. It wasn't all big-name creatives at Lemme Comic Con. 
A wonderful range of small press creators are also represented and we got to talk to a few of them. Hi, uh, I'm Jay Martin. I'm a writer. I write comics, I write novels, I write a couple of other things as well. I like to play around with different genres and all that kind of thing. As you can see from the table, I've got quite a wide variety of things that are going on at the minute. Starting off with the superhero side, I do ALV, which is a comic about the world's only superhero. If you start off in the comics, it turns out that she's fallen out of favour with the rest of the world. Something's happened, we're not too sure what it is yet, but she's now the most hunted woman on the planet. The comics are about a series of terror attacks that are trying to bring her back out into the public eye. I've also got uh, the Dominion series, which is, at the minute, it's a novel and a graphic novel. They're all set in, like, a dystopian future. There was supposed to be a climactic event which was going to destroy the, fu- the surface of the Earth. That never happened. But before that happened, half of the world decided to move to underground cities in the hope of escaping this event. Now they're at war with the people who are still on the surface, trying to get back to the way things used to be. People on the surface obviously don't want that to happen. The other thing I've got at the minute is the Car Anthology, which is a series of small short stories, working with some really amazing artists that are all in the small press at the moment. Quite a few of them are here today, actually, which is quite a nice thing. If you want to check out my stuff and all that kind of thing, the best place to do it at the moment is to search YWJ Entertainment on Facebook. The website at the minute is currently undergoing some stuff, but you can do that, or you can check us out on Comixology. ALV's all on there, and a couple of the other things are on there as well. Yeah, uh, my name's Jed McPherson. I'm a comic book writer. I wrote Deadbeat, which is a crime story about a deadbeat dad who tries to reconnect with his estranged daughter through armed robbery. I also wrote The Show, which is a reality TV satire, kind of like The Truman Show, if The Truman Show was run by Hunter S. And if people were interested in getting hold of your books, where can they find you online? If you just go to my website, which is jedmcpherson.com, there will be a link to my social media and to my online store. Hi, I'm Chris Sides. I am the writer of uh, Impossible, Here and There, Close, uh, Dark Matters 1, 2 and Soon to be 3. I've got a book coming out next year called The Gunrunner with Pete Woods and Ken Reynolds, which is coming out through Marcosia. And I, you can, guys can find me at www.chrissideswriter.com or on sort of the usual social media channels. Whilst wandering the show floor, we bumped into friend of the show, Jason Cobley, comic writer best known for creating Frontier with artist Andrew Wildman. Jason took the opportunity to tell us a little bit more about his latest project, the novel A Hundred Years to Arras. Okay, so it's called A Hundred Years to Arras, and it's based on the experiences of a relative of mine, Robert Gooding Henson, who fought at the Battle of Arras in 1917 in northern France. And so it's based on his experiences, and it's based around the family and what happened before and after his battle. And it's basically taken that as a framework and fictionalised it into a novel. And it's being funded through Unbound, which is a publisher who basically crowdfund the costs of the initial editorial and launch procedures. And then it gets published in any bookshop you can possibly think of, including Waterstones and so on. All it needs is a certain number of pre-orders, so it's taking pre-orders at unbound.com forward slash books forward slash 100 years to harass at the moment. In the final panel of the day, once again hosted by Ollie McNamee, we got to hear from Hannah Berry, an award-winning creator of graphic novels Adam Tyne and Livestock, and who is also the current Comics Laureate. The third comic laureate this country has ever known. Hannah Berry is also the first female comic laureate, following in the footsteps of Dave Gibbons, the first one, and also Charlie Adlard, the second one, who passed the crown on last year, or was it earlier this year? I, I forget mean, he, he officially passed it on in October, but then I, I didn't receive it until... March. Right. It was sort of like, a, like an official passing on. He sort of said, he announced yeah. it to me, but he had like a tail end to sort of tie up any loose ends, uh, settle any debts, that kind of thing. <laughs> this has been born out of a comic festival, the Lakes International Comic Art Festival. What was your experience of that show and how did you... Or how did they go about approaching you to become Comic Laureate? What's the process? Uh, they sent me an email... They, so uh, Julia Tate, I'm assuming, from... Yeah, from, so, um, so she sent an email. It was a very quick thing saying, hey, just very quickly, <coughs> would you be interested in being the next Comics Laureate? Uh, right, I'll, I'll be up for that. The thing is, that when she sent it, I was heavily pregnant at the time. I said, I'll do it as long as I can cart around a tiny child with me. 
and they said yeah equal opportunities that's fine yeah. that's fine and they've you know, been very good about it whenever they send an email and I, I say I'm sorry I can't reply I'm battling sick um, but yeah no sorry uh, the, the festival I've been um, I mean I think I went when was the first Andy you'll know when was the first I'll put you right on the spot now. Oh, Andy <laughs> thought he was here as, as, <laughs> as a non-participant, not a victim. <laughs> well, you shouldn't have sat in the front row. I can see you so clearly. Six or seven years ago? 2013. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been to most of them. And it sort of started out, it's like a, it was trying to, it's trying to be the um, British equivalent of Angoulême in France. So like a big uh, city-wide, inclusive, open um, comics thing. And it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a big deal. It's a, it's it a is a big deal, yeah. yeah. And so the Comics Laureate, um, because obviously the University of Lancaster up there s- supports that. Comics, yeah. So it's, it's got a lot of weight behind it, I must yeah. admit. It certainly feels like a very... Looking from the outside in, I'm glad that Britain has finally got a Comics Laureate. I mean, I do have... Um, if anybody doesn't know, I do have a cloak. There is a ceremonial cloak that comes with it, which I think was made for Dave Gibbons as a joke. However, I have worn it. And I've opened a conference, the, the graphic medicine conference. I did a little opening speech, wore the cloak. There's a lot of Americans there. They loved it. They loved that kind of thing. And um, the only thing is that Dave Gibbons is very tall. Yeah. And broad-shouldered, oh. and I am not Not as that. tall. <laughs> and so it just looks like I've got into a dressing-up box. <laughs> it, it's, not as, it's not as imposing as I would like it to be. How do you envisage your two years, um, if all goes smoothly... How do you envisage it going and what kind of things would you personally want to get involved with before we start talking about literacy, comics yeah. in the classroom and all the big all issues around that? Yeah. So I, I had a... Uh, I was, they were very good about it. They, they said that I could make it whatever I wanted to be, the, the role I could do, whatever I wanted to do with it. And so I wanted to try to... Obviously, literacy is, the, is a big prong. And I wanted to try and... Um, within that, I wanted to try to see if I could use comics to reach out to... Um, people, kids and adults learning English as a foreign language because um, my mum my is Ecuadorian when she was a kid she went to school in the States and she learned English largely by reading comics uh, with my granddad which is a lovely story and also true I should say it's not yeah, just yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so I, I know the, like, the, the power of, of learning a language through comics because the context is there it's mm. all very straightforward and um, also to, uh, to use comics for, for, to help with literacy amongst uh, offenders, because I think, I'm not sure, I think the average reading age in the prison population is something like eight, or it's, it's mm. shockingly low, it's really, really bad. Um, so uh, anything there, but there's, there's, they're both groups which um, traditionally don't have huge amounts of money thrown at them. So um, it's a case of finding schemes yeah. ways to make it happen also the other part of the laureateship is being an ambassador for the medium um, I've come, I'm trying to come up with ideas I've, come, I've got some I've got some schemes Good. I've, got, I've got ways Good. Yeah, yeah, of, uh, of uh, things to um, things to make happen to embiggen the idea of comics in people's minds but the comics laureate role who chooses that was there, clearly there must be some sort of secretive guild all behind mm, for you to receive this it. email i mean i imagine <laughs> charlie adlard would have been involved at some point i i guess he would have done i don't know who, who exactly is on the committee i know that there's um, oh that's there's, interesting. Yeah, there's an actual okay. committee um i just that you don't know it that's very secretive yeah i know well the, i think it's the committee behind behind the lakes festival <coughs> and some people from lancaster university possibly some other people quite a few quite a few other people i, I don't i genuinely don't know yeah. but they had to they they sat around and they decided who i, I don't know if they had some nominations or what or what the process was exactly don't I ask think, too many questions no, it's best not to i think what they did what they wanted somebody they wanted a woman um, they wanted uh, somebody who was younger. Don't know why. That's just what they said. Um, I don't think demographics. demographics. Demographics, darling. That's demographics. What it is. That's what it is. <laughs> and they wanted somebody who was less famous than uh, Charlie and Dave because, unfortunately, when when they went into schools or went to to speak to any um, any large groups of people, they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell us about the zombies, which uh, or tell us about Watchmen, which. Um, was uh, I mean it was great because they were able to it was it opened a lot more doors for them but on the other hand it meant that that the door was only open for zombies or watchmen yeah that's true which I backfired so I've very I think it's quite nice of me to have a lower key career than than they have 
Have you been in any, any skills yet, or have you spoken to any students in any depth at all? Uh, I mean, individual students. I haven't been to. Well, this is sort of the problem: is the um, because of the kiddo that I have. Yes. Uh, I can't really get out to to do individual school visits. Yeah. So what I've been all I've done so far is a lot of emailing, a lot of phone calls, a lot of you know individual meetings with with um, various people at places like this. I've met a lot of individual teachers and students and librarians. Um, however, I've not been into any actual schools or done any actual mm. laureating on the ground. But it's still early days, and let's not forget, yeah. you got it in March, and then we've got that big summer holiday. And yeah. so, and it's not that time of year when teachers are necessarily thinking, oh, who should we have in those summer terms yeah. and things like that. But a lot of schools are saying they do a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of enriching programmes, and I dare say there might be people here with children in local schools, or people who might even work in local schools who might go back, yeah. speak to the people that need to be spoken to. And maybe twist their arm, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. And also, what I'd like to be able to do as well is to is to, in a sense, kind of deputise people who live in uh, live in the same city as the as the schools. Yeah. So that they'll be able to go in and talk about comics, but also form that kind of local connection. So when they want somebody to come in in future to do workshops or to do talks or to do whatever with the kids, they'll be able to say, "Oh, that's you know, we can get um, Michael Bibbly Blue to yeah. come and." That's not an actual. But I yeah, but I like Michael Bibbly Blue's new it's stuff. It's very good. Very good. It's not as good as old stuff. But I really like that idea. So you'd be the Don of the Mafia, and you'd have all of these uh, capos working for you, (laughs) going into different schools. Yeah, and then I'll have a heart attack with a a piece of orange in my mouth. (laughs) That's how I plan to go out. So it's quite—it seems like quite a a big process behind the scenes because obviously somewhere like Birmingham, you've got quite a healthy amount of comic creators who would probably be more than happy. To take that, I mean, Laura Howe, for example, who's, uh, you know, yeah. the Beano's first female creator, does these wonderful workshops. Oh, um, I bet, yeah. Oh, for all age groups and so on and so forth. She did it for years. And it, those are the sort of experiences where you can grab those teachers. Yeah. You can grab those pupils. You can, and, and, and having sort of a skill where English additional language was a huge issue. Yeah. You know, using comics or some of these pupils found a talent they didn't think they had because the art department may not have allowed them to yeah. go through and there. Kind of a communication talent as yeah. well. Which must, I mean, the, the, the frustration of not being able to, to reach your peers or to, to you know, exchange ideas and things, it must be, I can't even imagine it, it must be infuriating. So where do you start then as the comics lawyer? This is a huge vacuous question. Emails, so do think. So if I waffle on a bit, I'll give you a bit of time. Lots of emails. So... You've talked about maybe having these um, citywide ambassadors and maybe sort of even more rural ambassadors. You know, yeah. someone, it seems to me like you've, you've already got a kind of plan of action for the next two years. Yeah. Where would you hope in a year's time maybe you would be if all things go according to plan? And maybe where you would hope the Comics Laureate role would stand after you were uh, well, leave? I mean, I don't know about the, the role itself, but the thing... The ultimate thing that I would love to be able to, to probably not set up because it's only two years, uh, yeah. half, mostly halfway through it, is something like, uh, it's to, be able, to be able to get into motion, something like the start of the poetry society that exists. So they, in poetry they have this, this central body, which um, I, if, anybody, if any poets are in the room and know otherwise, uh, please, please tell me because just in case I'm wrong. But they, um, they have a central body which uh, anybody who is interested, their focus is on um, expanding the use of poetry and sort of spreading the word about poetry and promoting poetry within the country and outside of the country as well. So, some, but something the thing is that they have a, a kind of a central body and everybody, all, all I think poets sort of uh, treat it as like a union almost. So they they pay their dues, but they they get um, uh, notices of work, of call outs for work, mm. of, of connections, of festivals, of bits and pieces which are happening. Anybody outside of poetry who wants to use poetry for whatever thing they can contact the Poetry Society and say, hey, can you recommend us somebody who can do this kind of thing? And they say, yes, look at these people, look at these people. So there's not uh, just a way to make... If there was a way to make comics accessible to people outside who might want to dip a toe and don't know how... Because at the moment, we're a very, very disparate group. Um, and it, there's all different areas of comics. And I think for outsiders, they're not really... Probably not really aware of what, what we do so much. So that's that's something I'd like to be able... And also within that, I think they also have bursaries and they have grants and they have um, ways of helping to fund creators, like pots of money for prizes and things. Mm. Um, so some way of being able... Because the money part of things, that's something I really want to be able to, to 
try and do something about because there's there's just no there's no money in comics. No. It's um it's I mean if you look at the the amount of arts funding that goes into the Royal Opera Society mm. House Society opera and ballet and these other high art forms. Yes, of it's course. ridiculous amounts of money. And, you know, that, that's all well and good, but they're not accessible to everybody, are they? Therefore, let's say the elite. In the old-fashioned word, uh, meaning of the word elite, not just, you know... So it seems like you've got quite an uphill struggle. Part of that mm. seems to be the old argument of what is considered high culture, what is considered low culture. I think if there's a stream running through what we talked about in terms of what teachers, unless you're into it... You see it as low art when those of us in it know it. it's far more than low art and it's yeah. far more eclectic, far more varied than, it, than maybe it ever has been in a number of years now. Mm. Um, re-educating the masses is going to be a tough job, isn't it? But do yeah. you think, for example, there are agencies where you can hook up with, for example, Paul Register, who does the Excelsior Awards, mm. which is similar to the Carnegie Book Awards that are done in schools, where each month they've got a series of... Uh, independent graphic novels and you know one from Marvel one from DC lots represented um, and they basically just vote them off one by one now that's something that at the moment in school they do this they do this but it's, yeah. it's something it started off in Sheffield so but Paul Register again big supporter of Thought Bubble he's moved out of being a librarian and now he runs it full time however it's still a system you have to buy into mm. and then Thankfully, the amount of comic books you have to buy is about 80 quid, so even yeah. some of the poorer schools in the country run it. But to me, that's, again, talking about this disparation of all of these different agencies that already exist. Yeah. Is that maybe something you'd look into, maybe making those connections, maybe bringing everyone close together, I mean, whether it's through fantastic. email or not? Yeah, yeah, that would be that would be ideal, really. I mean, I've, I've had several meetings. This sounds, again, like I'm, like I'm the Don. I'm not... That. But I've, I've tried, been trying to have lots of meetings with, with uh, different sort of literacy or, or like chats on the phone with different groups. So I had a, a really good meeting with um, the, uh, the the director, I think, of the Royal Society of Literature, and they're they're keen on doing more graphic novel things. This is part of the problem. I think that um, there are there are people out there because this goes back to, to the, the support of comics generally and the financial side of it. There's, the readership is not is just not quite big enough to be able to support this industry um and there are lots of there are plenty of avid readers out there of other books and i think we if if we can sort of tap into them and persuade them that um like the legitimacy of comics yeah that they're you know they're worthy of their their time and their interest and their money then um that would be an enormous benefit to us all yeah, so uh, one of the things that uh, I think the scheme, scheme, which is the most uh, advanced, I guess, uh, is um, a survey of everybody making comics in the UK, which I'd like to, I'm trying to put together. Mm. Because once we, I mean, it's, it's, pure, it's purely anecdotal that, you know, these people, that you can make money in this area. These people are doing this and they don't make any money. These people are doing this and they make some money doing this and blah, blah, blah. But um, we, it's... It, we don't have the actual statistics to back it up, and part of the of uh, getting any um, any of these groups on board to be able to support us is to um, is to say. Well, this is, this is more on the ambassadorial side rather than the yeah, side, yeah. But it's but all part. It's all kind of, the, of connected. Yeah, yeah. Um, is to be able to say to, to have the actual statistics. Say, well, look, the sixty-seven percent of people who self-publish comics they they earn uh, three pounds fifty per year. You know, with that kind of um, that kind of thing. Hopefully, it's not as depressing. No, I remember reading uh, Leah Moore, um, daughter of uh, yeah. Alan, one year, and she openly said this publicly. So I don't, you know, her and her, John, her, her writing partner, made fifteen grand all year just just on writing. So it is, and, and uh, that it's sounds really, pretty yeah, accurate. <laughs> it's you know, it's unbelievable because here we are, I suppose, in awe of many creators who we meet in comic cons and things like that. Yeah, and and often. Certainly for me to sort of get over my oh my god, it's, I think hold on, they probably on the same amount of money as me, and they probably just as yeah, and yeah. It, that that immediately brings you back down to earth and where you're able to talk to that person yeah. because that must be a, 
But those, they're human beings who are, who are looking at the high-end sandwich thinking, no, actually, I better get the cheaper one. But you're a good choice in that you're a human being. That, you know, if it's Charlie Adlard, a lot of people go, oh, it's Charlie Adlard. Forget about the... If they talk about the zombies, great. Yeah. But they've got to get over, it's Charlie Adlard, before they talk to the zombies. Yeah. I would argue, as you, you know, you're right, you said yourself, you're I'm on... very approachable. You're, you are very approachable. But I, mean, but I wonder whether that is going to be a huge help where maybe it wasn't necessary for David who himself was very busy yeah. and Charlie who was busy I mean I saw Charlie once when he was doing that I've already seen you twice as Comet Laureate already true yeah <laughs> well, that's because I'm following you around I don't know if you one or the other <laughs> but I suppose are you finding that you're um, you're invited to more cons and more sort of public talks and sort of the planning you're doing behind the scenes for a big event like Thought Bubble hmm. where I dare say in Harrogate literacy is a real issue uh, <laughs> but a Harrogate, I dare say, has got deprived areas like any other place. Oh, yeah, Do you yes. find that suddenly there's a, a, a different spotlight on you now because of your role? Um, yeah, yeah, I feel like I, I need to deliver. And that, 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 uh, whereas before I could just bimble into a room and, um, and maybe sell some books, maybe chat to some people then. And then. But yeah, now, now, there's, uh, now I feel like I need to... Also, well, also, I feel like I need to be more serious, which um, is, is uh, problematic because I'm not super serious. But... Um, I, I mean, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's, there are expectations to live up to, which I hopefully will. There's, there, there's, a, there's a lot of pressure where there wasn't before. What was your own experience of reading comics in a school setting? Was it verboten or was it one of those it was, things? Yeah, it was verboten. Um, I mean, I, I think... Uh, I used to read them at home religiously, but, um, but they, yeah, no, they weren't really... It wasn't considered literature. No, I mean, it just... It, it's funny, it wasn't... I don't even remember bringing in comics. I think they were just... It was just agreed that they were not... They were not... School Library have any graphic novels in No, it? God, no. Really? No, no, no. Not in 1980... Yeah. Not in the 19... Like, early 1990s. Yeah. Oh, that's OK, yeah. So, Obviously, they have changed a bit now, thankfully. Yeah, yeah, I hope so. Goodness yeah. me, but that's where these Excelsior Awards help out, because if you're a library buying these books, you've got a set of books... You do it another year, suddenly you've got another set of books, and before you know it, you've got a whole library of, of yeah. comic book adaptations. Apparently they're the most, uh, the most often stolen as well, graphic novels. But what, what sort of comics did you enjoy reading? Because, of course, in Britain we had the Asterix and Novelix comics. Yeah, we I, had... I used to, I used yeah. to read those. I used to read uh, Tintin. But the ones, that were, the ones that I grew up reading were, were uh, Calvin and Hobbes. Um, yeah. But, so cool. Yeah, but they were. Um, I don't know if you could even buy them when I was a kid. But um, they were. My granddad used to send them over from Ecuador. The, in the the funny pages, he used to get like the New York Times or something like that. He used to get an American paper that had the funny pages in, and he would po- he would put wow. them in a, in a uh, like a big box and then like ship them over as a as sort of. A... That's quite magical, though, isn't yeah. it? You can see how you fell in love with comics. Oh, I mean, if absolutely. That was yeah. Something to happen. It was so. It was. It was so good, and the. Um, and when when he passed away, my aunt would do the same thing from Canada. I think by that time, the we still we had the comics over here by then. But there's still you know there's something really yeah. really exciting about these about these comics. And you know Hagar the horrible Hagar 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 who knows yeah you say potato I say potato <laughs> and like all these are Doonesbury. And I, I mean they were they were um, so I mean for, from an early age comics were something they were like a gift they were a treat they yeah. were something that you shared with those close to you they were they were something to be treasured. Questions now. Yeah. Are there any questions about comics in the classroom? Comics. Ryan, the questionnaire, and then a lady at the back. Yeah, just a quick question for me. There seems to be, again, a great indie scene in the UK comics scene. And we've got this high level stuff, which is Marvel, DC. The gap seems to be in that middle area. Uh, quite a lot of British comics were used lived in like, sort of the 70s, 60s, was over the evil comics. Is that kind of way you'd like to see stuff come back to? Yeah, I mean, I hope, I sort of hope that the the indie scene would sort of grow to, would be able to grow to fill that because the, the it's so it's so vibrant, it's so exciting at the moment. There's so much there's so much going on that I would ideally it would be nice to be able to support the 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 more independent side of things to 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 reach wider audiences. I mean, I, I again, I don't know. It, it all comes down to money, doesn't it? And without that, you can't. You can't put something out unless there's a readership, and you can't get the readership unless there's something out, and there's this kind of this this vicious cycle. But I, I yeah, you're right. There's that that gap in the middle is is um, it's it's an important one to bridge. I, I uh, I've been emailing, um, getting no reply from various levels of Waterstones to to ask if they'd be interested in a in a, a, a good experiment basically, where on their shop floor 
in their di- in each different section of the of the bookshop, they had one or two graphic titles. So you know, a graphic like in in cookery, for example, they'd have the art of faux. Mm-hmm. In travel, they'd have let me in. They'd have, like so the the kind of the that independent comic scene. They'd be able to um, show people that it exists because for a lot of people, a lot of the general public, they're they're only aware of the the, the bigger titles. Um, I've not heard anything back yet, but I, I will. I, I did go into foils and mention the same thing to them, and they went, "Yeah, all right." So hopefully, it's just a case of speaking to individual bookshops. But I would hope that that will slowly. I, I think, I think it's a case of tipping off more people that, that these things exist, and then um, finding ways to to help them reach their audiences. Last question from the back. Going about the accessibility of, of comics. Um, now, when I grew up, it was mostly male. When I look around, it's mostly horror and gore and blood. Um, have you got a plan of how to make it accessible for girls, those with special needs, those with a different religious background? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that a lot of that will come from um, this, this. So, the survey that I'm trying to do will hopefully be able to. to highlight, I, I didn't want to come out come right and say it, but I wanted to be able to highlight the fact that the people who are making um, largely largely self-published and webcomics, the, the, the diverse background of the, the diversity of people who are making these comics is much broader than those who are making comics where there are gatekeepers, for example. Um, so, you know, your Marvels and your DCs. And I, I would hope that um, being able to say, you know, there are there's this percent, there's this many people who are um, trans who are making web comics who are earning pennies, We're, and we we could be able to take that information and go and access pots of cash, which would help them <coughs> sort of support them whilst they're making art. I mean, hopefully, as to accessibility, I mean, I think probably the, I think just making it more visible is is kind of the, it's kind of the uphill challenge, isn't it? To, to make them to make uh, to find the readership, yeah, I don't know if there's a really an easy answer, but I I hope that um, being able to support individual creators would be a a good way of of um, yeah yeah hopefully. Which sounds like a very multi-faceted role. Oh, have. so many facets. And halfway through the year, I'd like to thank Hannah Berry, and of course, I'd like to ha- thank you, the audience, for coming to support the Comics Laureates here and in the future. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to this special edition of the Geeky Brummy podcast. As always, you can find us online on Twitter at geekybrummy.com. You can also find us on Facebook and you can check out our website at www.geekybrummy.com. Please make sure that you subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss the next edition, which will be coming along soon. And we'd like to thank all of the small press creatives, guests, panel hosts and organisers of Lemma Comic Con for letting us attend. And we hope to see you all again soon. So until next time, goodbye and thanks for listening.